Hi and welcome to the Witch Hunter podcast. I am Domine de Groot from Audio Epics, which is a small group of audio drama enthusiasts and creators from Antwerp, Belgium. Witch Hunter is actually a novel that I wrote, but it's brought to life now through music, great music by my good friend Peter van Riet, sound effects and a cast of voice actors, including myself, my wife Eline, and Aaron Bodanovich, another good friend of ours. So what is the plan with this podcast? Well, each week we'll publish the next chapter of the story right here in this podcast. The entire saga of Witch Hunter will be about 13 hours long. That doesn't mean that we're just going to end this podcast after those 13 hours, though, as we have plenty more up our sleeves over here at Audio Epics. In between, we'll have some chats, bring some guests over, etc., etc., So, without further ado, here is the prologue and chapter one of Witch Hunter. last days of this age, the tongue of the goddess will flow away from the earth. Her words will be murdered and forgotten, and men will scorn and burn her. Scriptura Sancta, Pre-Voronitsian Edition I see a burned man, rising. He crushes the heart of a storyteller, and cast its ruin into the abyss, calling forth the evil. He will rise. Lucus. Dying words of Sancta Margareta, the seeress. On the edge of the abyss shall the last age dawn. The blood of the maiden shall take up the weapon of Lucus, evil no more. Her sacrifice shall end his reign. But the burned man shall rise and be king. From the word of Wolfen. Prologue. So now the darkness is complete, Ludlov said. He wasn't sure whether he was talking to himself or to the impenetrable gloom that enclosed him. You know who I am, don't you? The unexpected voice was deep and warm, and unmistakably ancient. Not croaky or hoarse at all, it sounded like the speaker held the knowledge and experience of many centuries of history, like he had been present at the rise and fall of whole kingdoms and civilizations, and the words and deeds of many thousands of lives. It was as if Ludlov was having a conversation with history itself in this dark, and unknown place. Yes, I know who you are, Ludlov said, as the realization of what this meant to him steeped in. A candlestick was lit. 
The bright, soft crackle sounded comforting and fresh in the midst of the inky blackness, but it left no hint of the scent of sulfur. In the tepid yellow glare of the little flame, he could now see the face and hands of a male figure with a pale, round head, who was using the flame to light a single white candle between the two of them. He was of indiscernible age, this man. Sitting there, he had the appearance of a monk, clad in a heavy woolen cloak, wearing an expression of contented and immobile patience. The warm, inviting eyes of the old man looked weary, as if he hadn't slept in days. Ludlove looked defiantly into the candle flame, letting his fierce, hawkish eyes adjust to the sudden brightness. Beyond the two men, there was only an all-encompassing darkness. Are you aware of your position? It's all over. Yes. I am aware of that. Don't be so gloomy, friend. Do you find this darkness disturbing? Ludlove looked around, truly taking in the darkness that surrounded him for the first time. No. I find it strangely comforting. The old man nodded. It was clear he had heard this many times before. You are now in the womb of the afterlife. You have reached the end of the temporary and will soon embark upon your journey into the eternal. But first, there is a time of our candle. He gestured towards the light source between them. This is the time you have been given to answer to me for all you have done and all you have forsaken to do. The measure of the life you have led will now be taken and then, if you are found worthy, you will look upon the countenance of our beloved goddess. Ludlove looked into the candlelight and felt sadness falling on his heart. Not in a sudden or oppressive way, but dwindling down and gently accumulating like snow on a gravestone. I do not think my soul is pure enough to deserve that. But before you judge me, please know that I've always tried to avoid the pain and hurt of others, and I've always fought against despair. I did not always succeed. I know what it means to hate, and I know what it means to love. I have a name, and I have a story. The monk-like gentleman raised his eyebrows in surprise. I will not be as quick to judge you as you may think, good friend. Fear not. All who come to me are given a chance to sit down and tell their tales. That is the purpose of the candle. So please, begin. He paused, evidently waiting for Ludlove to respond. He did at last, simply by nodding. Very well. I will begin. My name was Ludlov, and I was a witch hunter. Introitus The razor-sharp tip of Ludlov's rapier penetrated the dark fabric of the cloak, stuck through the softness of the man's skin, and made its way past a thin layer of musculature into his heart. 
there was no remorse to be found in the necromancer's yellowish eyes as he looked up to the witch hunter's stern face. Still on his knees, the man's lips curled in a smile. No, a smirk, Ludlow thought. As the light of life left his unnaturally colored eyes, the smirk turned to a crazed grin, revealing the necromancer's sharp, bloody teeth. Ludlow didn't waste any more time and placed his right foot on his victim's shoulder, using it as a counterweight as he slid the blade in one fluent motion out of the body, which fell lifeless to the wooden floorboards with a dull thud. Disgust slithered through Ludlow. Even in his final moments, the necromancer had kept his pride and conviction. Ludlow quietly wondered how a man could so stubbornly persevere in willfully treading the path of damnation, even into eternity. The witch hunter bit his thin lips and slowly tried to relax his muscles and let the tension flow out of his body. He started towards the wooden ladder that would lead him to the ground floor of the windmill when he heard something that sounded like an angry serpent hissing. The sound distracted him for a moment. He paused to inspect the weapon in his hand. The dark purple liquid from the necromancer's veins that had stained his blade had begun to bubble and foam, no doubt corroding the steel of his weapon. Blood tainted by dark magic. He gazed at it for a moment, wondering what kept him from simply hastening towards the nearby creek and cleaning the blade in fresh water before the blood could damage it any further. Then he remembered that he obviously couldn't allow such a vile liquid to mingle with the drinking water of these hapless villages. A sudden wave of weariness brought him down, forcing him to throw his weapon aside onto the wooden floorboards. He sank down onto a pile of burlap meal sacks and sighed deeply. His gaze wandered around the room to take in its quiet solitude and finally settled upon the fresh corpse he had made. Even now, that horrid grin remained carved in the pale, dead face. It was a terrible sight to behold. If anyone had been able to look beneath the wide brim of the witch-hunter's hat, they would not have found any hint of triumph in his eyes, nor of satisfaction or smugness. He ran his left hand over his coarse facial features, wiping off his sweat. Then he simply remained where he was and listened to the sounds of his heartbeat and his breathing as they gently returned to their ordinary rhythms, meanwhile observing the aftermath of the violence he had brought into the world and the slow corrosion of his rapier's blade. He could easily get a new one. Men such as Ludlow had unlimited access to weapons of every kind. As he sat there, lost in thought, the sound of footsteps on the straw downstairs could be heard, followed by the unmistakable wooden creak of someone climbing up the ladder. Ludlow looked up. A young man appeared, a pasty, big-eared face beneath a woolly green hat. The eyes and mouth of the young miller's son were wide open with amazement. The boy's expression reminded Ludlow of a hungry fish. Master Ludlow, the boy exclaimed. He's... he's dead. You've done it. I had no choice, lad. The witch hunter's tone was flat, his voice almost a whisper. The miller's boy nodded, clearly unable to understand why the witch hunter was maudlin rather than proud. Your rapier, master, the boy said, trembling 
as he picked up the weapon and offered it to Ludlow. Reluctantly, the witch hunter took the handle and rose. He towered over the boy, a tall shape of two colors, the dark brown of his leather, copper-buttoned jerkin, and the black of his riding boots, his long, shoulder-caped coat, and his tall, broad-brimmed hat. Hawkish eyes, an aristocratic nose, and dark shoulder-length hair completed the picture. He noticed the boy was staring at him with fearful admiration. Before Ludlow had come to this town, the lad had probably never seen a witch hunter. But the hat was an icon so recognizable that even townspeople in remote villages found themselves in awe when they saw one up close. Ludlow patted the boy on the back, trying to diffuse his veneration. It wasn't like this back in the city. Come on, he said. Your village is waiting. It's time to tell them of Rupert's death. The witch hunter was received as a conquering hero as he emerged from the mill into the cool grey morning air. They all cheered him, thanked him and praised him, but Ludlow did not even smile. He descended down the hill and went to the babbling brook by the edge of the woods surrounding the village. The villagers followed behind him, still jubilant. Ludlow kneeled and took off his gloves. He started to wash his face in the cold autumn river water. The water felt bright and invigorating. Ignoring the townspeople, he pulled a white handkerchief from the breast pocket of his leather jerkin and started cleaning the blade of his weapon with it. If he might be able to salvage it after all, why shouldn't he make the effort, as long as he didn't allow the corrupted steel to touch the water? The handkerchief was perfectly resistant to the biting venom of the blood. No doubt the necromancer had induced his own blood with the properties of silver fire, an alchemical concoction known to affect metal in strange ways. It was not the first time Ludlow had encountered its use as a defense against mortal weapons. He had never before met a foe insane enough to have the evil substance coursing through his veins, though. The rapier's blade looked scarred and damaged, but it was still sharp. He would still be able to use it, should he meet more enemies out here, although he would probably need a new weapon once he got back to Seven Peaks. The cheering behind him eventually died down, and Ludlow put his gloves back on, stood up and slid his rapier into the leather scabbard dangling from his hip. Instead of the smooth sound he was used to, there was a metallic rasp as he did so. He walked through the crowd, absent-mindedly handing the bloody piece of cloth to a random onlooker. The woman who had received the handkerchief turned up her nose and passed it on to her husband. Master Ludlow, cried a man with a high-pitched voice from somewhere in the crowd. Are you leaving so soon? The witch hunter turned to face the villagers. Yes, I am. Why? Do you require my service for another task? The miller laughed. He was a jolly, heavy-set man with a round face, half hidden behind a lavish moustache. Well, there ought to be some sort of party to celebrate our liberation from the necromancer, don't you think? And surely our saviour would be an indispensable guest of honour. The witch hunter looked at the miller with a cold grey stare that quickly threw a tense silence over the villagers. He looked some of them in the eye. Those who dared to meet his gaze did so at first with a kind of merry anticipation, but then they quickly turned their faces. None of them seemed to understand why Ludlow was in no mood for a feast. 
How could they? The monster threatening their peaceful place had been vanquished, and they could return to their lives. To them, there was only good news here. To Ludlove, it was different. Every time he killed, it hurt him. It was not a matter of remorse or guilt. Rather, he felt angry about it. He killed, and killed often, and he did so with conviction. But there was nothing enjoyable about seeing the light of life disappear from a person's eyes. It was something no one who had never taken a life could understand. The man lying dead inside your mill was smart and talented, but weak, Ludlove explained, raising his voice so as to address the entire village. He could have been many things a notary, perhaps, or a priest, or a magistrate. Instead, he chose to submit his soul to the darkness, and thus became a threat to himself and to you. I have killed him because he was beyond all redemption. If this is a reason for you to celebrate, then by all means celebrate without me. Nobody replied or followed Ludlove as he turned and left the village. He entered the stable adjoining the local inn and greeted his horse. As he was checking the saddle, he saw a little girl approaching, hardly more than ten years old. She held a small, rolled up piece of paper in her hand, bound in a silk ribbon. Master Ludlov, a message arrived for you from the city. Ludlov nodded. He had expected this. Very good, girl, he said, as he reached into the coin purse on his belt and produced a copper fox. Smiling broadly, the child accepted the coin and handed over the note with a grand gesture. Ludlove removed the binding and unrolled the paper. It was a message written in impeccable handwriting. Tomorrow, after the sun has set, the witch hunter known as Adomir will perish in his own flames. Beneath the words, there was a black mark made in expensive Parslovanian ink. A sickle with a large, single drop representing blood dangling from the curve of the blade, ready to fall. The witch hunter immediately knew what it meant. He felt his heartbeat racing. He clenched his jaw and crushed the note in his fist, straining the leather of his glove with a creaking sound. He looked down to the girl. When did you get this? He asked. Barely ten minutes ago, sir. The girl said. He nodded. You did well. Go home now, child. As the girl left the stable, he put the crumpled piece of paper in the breast pocket of his jerkin, mounted his horse, and raced out of the little village. Samina pulled the cork from the jar and sniffed the herbs inside. Their smell was faint and dry, which was not right, not right at all. Freelongleaf was supposed to have an almost overwhelmingly fresh minty scent. These had been in the cupboard for far too long and lost most of their potency. In addition, their dryness would make it difficult to extract the healing qualities within. In ideal circumstances, she probably wouldn't have used them anymore, but she knew well enough that she didn't have that much of a choice. Living in the city had changed so many things. 
Gone were the days of simply picking the fresh herbs she needed for her mother. Gone were the days of feeling the dewy moss beneath her bare feet as she wandered the woods and smelled the freshness of the morning. She had hoped the herbs in the jar would have reminded her of that, but they didn't anymore. Living in the city had drained the free long leaf, much as it had drained Sermina herself. There was no fresh morning scent here, only an insane, ever mutating clash of smells and noise. There had been noises in the woods too, of course, and they hadn't always been kind. Yet somehow, the sounds that would emerge from deep in the forest had always seemed less like noise than what she heard here. Merchants praising their goods with bellowing voices, blacksmiths hammering their iron into shape, different street musicians all playing and singing separately, living in their own musical worlds. Trying to blot out the noise around them, each deemed themselves to be the only voice of harmony, and that was why they all only contributed to the cacophony. <coughs> She heard her mother going into another coughing fit downstairs. <coughs> She'd better use these herbs after all. It would be better than nothing. It was impossible to stand up here in what she and her mother jokingly referred to as the pantry. They lived in an attic, but they kept their ingredients in the attic of the attic, a tiny crawling space right beneath the pointy rooftop of the building. It was chock full of bottles, jars, boxes, and kegs. The heavy wooden beam above served as a hanging rack, from which burlap sacks dangled, filled with spices and seeds. Holding the jar of free long leaf in her left hand, she pulled a strand of long dark hair behind her right ear and crawled towards the ladder. Her knees hurt, as she noticed only when she came down the ladder. Her mother was lying in her bed by the window, looking exhausted. The coughing had stopped. But her breathing was still heavy and slow. They're dry, but I'll give it a try. Try and make. Her mother began, but the mucus in her throat kept her from finishing her sentence. Tea. Her mother nodded. There were no mugs or cups, so Samina took a bowl from one of the shelves behind the ladder to the pantry, and set it beside the jar on the table. That wobbly thing had been the place where she and her mother had crafted their concoctions for the past year now, ever since Sigurd had disappeared from their lives and they'd had to sell their wagon. Samina still had hope that her brother would one day return, but she knew her mother had given up on it. She had seen it in her eyes one day. Mother's illness had started soon after. Of course, Samina wondered whether those two things were related, but she didn't know. Mother had never been the weak type. Giving up was not natural to her, which only made it more difficult to bear. Samina emptied a small earthen pitcher with water from the rain barrel, and made her way to the stove by her mother's bedside. She placed the pot on top of the stove and sat down beside her mother, who smiled. It was a tired and weak little smile, but it made Samina automatically smile back. I am proud of you, girl. Samina didn't answer. Instead, she just let her fingers glide through her mother's thick hair. Some of that dark hair turned bright silver so quickly over the past few months. It was like the changing of the seasons, gradual, but inevitable. Soon it would be winter. For a while, there was only the sound of the wood crackling in the stove. 
Even though her illness had turned her thinner and paler than she used to be, Semina's mother was still an attractive woman of her age. She had passed on her beauty to her daughter, although Semina's fierce blue eyes were clearly her father's. The brightness of those eyes was an unexpected feature in combination with her coppery skin and dark hair, but it made her a striking appearance. She knew this was not why her mother was proud, though. She was proud because she believed that Semina had done so much to sustain them in the city, even after Sigurd's disappearance. Nevertheless, the truth was that Semina was not very proud of herself. While her mother was right in that Semina had worked tirelessly, making and selling potions and healing salves on top of managing their living quarters, she had done little to halt the process of her mother's death, or even slow it down. Her mother's death. She had never spoken those words aloud, but they both knew it was coming. And then Semina would be all alone. The water was boiling. Wordlessly, Semina stood up and took the pot to the table where she prepared her potions. She poured the steaming water into the bowl that was already there and took a small sieve from the shelf. Crushing the leaves into the sieve made a cozy, crackling sound. She then lowered the sieve into the bowl and let the tea steep. She looked at her mother, who was looking out of the window at the cathedral in the distance. At least the coughing had stopped. I know tea won't heal you, mother. It doesn't have to, dear. It was just the sort of thing her mother would say, brief and enigmatic, and with much more lurking beneath the surface of her words. She was still looking outside. Does looking at the city comfort you? Samina asked, as she pulled the sieve from the bowl and let the remaining water trickle into it. The water had coloured a satisfying green. It wasn't very strong tea, but, as her mother would have said, it didn't need to be. It comforts me to know there still is a city. Samina took the bowl to her mother's bedside. What do you mean? Her mother sat up and accepted the bowl with both hands. She started drinking the tea slowly at first, but then took a longer sip. This is not a good place, Samina, and it won't last long anymore. This was uncommonly pessimistic for her, and it made Samina feel uneasy. There are still good people here. Take Hans and Tara, for example. The mere mention of those names brought a smile back to her mother's face. Tara was a card layer, a fortune teller, and a Sintra gypsy, just like Samina's mother herself. Hans, on the other hand, was a cobbler, and as purely Northy Venendale as they came. He had come from a farmer's steading, but had built up a life for himself in the city with some success. He was the kind of man Mayor Grundheim would proudly use in a speech as an example of the true Seven Peaks spirit. That a man like Hans would endure the scorn of his family to marry a gypsy woman and devote his life to her, even going so far as to wear the gypsy earring, was heartwarming to Samina and her mother, and horrifying to other tradespeople in the trade quarter. Still, Mother's face turned somber again, frightened even. Warn them, Samina. Samina frowned. She knew her mother could see things others could not, and she knew there was no point in asking her exactly what she meant. She had once asked what her visions showed, and her mother had shrugged and compared it to asking the goddess what the shapes of the clouds were supposed to represent. 
when the time comes, you will know. Warn them. Samina swallowed. It wasn't the ominous tone of her mother's words that made her muscles stiffen and her appetite wane. It was the unspoken assumption that her mother would no longer be there to tell her when the time had come. The sun was setting in fierce hot colors as the witch hunter hastened to leave the western wilds behind him. All through the night, Ludlove rode through whispering ferns and tall, shadowy pine trees. The night sky was clear and starry, the full moon illuminating his way east in a silver blue glare. An owl hooted in some far corner of the woods as Ludlove rode past, but he chose to ignore the omen. And press on. It was already early morning by the time he met with the first sign of civilization, a small inn that heralded the end of the thick forests. Although the open plains of Evenendale, the wide valley where Seven Peaks was built, were still a good long ride away, the inn was called the Merry Traveller, but it didn't exactly live up to its name. It looked more like a slightly oversized hunter's shack, and when he entered. Ludlove found that his only company was the old innkeeper, a famished-looking woman with thin, greasy grey hair pasted to the sides of her face, with pungent sweat. She looked every bit the caricature of a witch, as found in pictures from children's books. She was cold and distant towards Ludlove, who wasn't bothered by this in the slightest. It seemed so obvious that it probably wasn't actually the case, but who knew? Maybe she really was a witch. Even if she was. He had no time to worry about her now. His stay at the Merry Traveller lasted no longer than an hour. He didn't pay for a room, even though he wondered how many rooms this establishment actually had and what they looked like. Instead, he only had a meager breakfast and ordered the innkeeper to carry a bucket of water to his horse. Then, when the sun was well and truly up, he paid and rode away again. The room where Tara accepted guests who wanted their fortune told was nothing like the sort of place described in stories believed by ignorant city dwellers. There were no dark, heavy curtains anywhere. She didn't keep eyeballs in a jar, and she didn't have a raven on her shoulders as she peered into a luminous crystal ball. It was a modest room, practical even and a bit austere. There was a round table in the middle, surrounded by three chairs. A black cat was sleeping on top of it. That, at least, fit with the preconceived notions of gypsy fortune tellers. Tara herself was unmistakably Sindra. She was a short, thin, tanned woman with olive-coloured eyes in a stern face. Her thick, curly hair was kept out of her face by a hairband. Her clothes were always in a clash of bright colours, and usually they were frilly. Today she had a yellow laced blouse with wide open sleeves. She wore rows of wood-carved bracelets on her slender arms, each of which held a special significance, and she had large golden earrings. 
Tara was one of those who had managed to keep to the old traditions even here in the poorest district of Seven Peaks. Samina and her mother had both sold their earrings long ago, even before Sigurd had left. I could lay the cards, but I don't think they would reveal much more than what your mother has already told you. Samina nodded. She could see it in Tara's eyes. She didn't want to speak the words either, but she knew. Samina took a long pause, determined not to let her voice break, but when she finally uttered the words, they sounded shaky and weak. She's going to die. Tara's eyes glistened, and she bit her lips as she nodded. Samina felt a bright heat behind her own eyes, and found herself suddenly laughing an odd, nervous little laugh. It sounded awful in her own ears. It's all right. I've known for a while. I'm not stupid. Tara looked at her sympathetically. Samina tried to dry her eyes with the palms of her hands and continued. It's just that... How was she going to finish that sentence? That Sigurd was gone as well, and she only had the vaguest recollections of her father, and that she was going to be all alone now? No. She wasn't going to sit here and whine and weep like a child. She she warned me. She concluded instead feeling the heat behind her eyes rising again. Tara slid her chair over to sit next to Samina. The fortune teller was trying to meet her eyes, but Samina didn't feel like showing her tears again, so she looked down, hiding her face behind her hair. The tears came rolling down the moment she had hidden her eyes. It's all right. I've seen them before. That was true. It was still a bit frightening, but she knew she didn't have to worry about Tara judging her. Reluctantly, Samina looked up. Tara didn't look startled in the slightest, even though she did study Samina's face, unable to hide her fascination. It was silly, perhaps, but it comforted Samina to know there was someone besides her mother who could look at her tears and not be alarmed. What did your mother warn you about? The end of Seven Peaks. Are you sure that's what she meant? Samina nodded. The city won't last long, she said, and she said that I would have to warn people when the time came. Then I know you will do that. It was simple enough. At least her mother had left her with clear instructions. It was all she had. Beside those simple words, there was nothing she knew to do, no goal to strive for. All she had lived for in the past few months had been taking care of her mother. That was now going to disappear, and in its stead, there was this terrible unknown future. A future without Sigurd, and without her mother. She'd had dreams once, of course. She had dreamed of becoming a spirit speaker, one who could commune with the beings of the wild. Living in the city had forced her to refocus her magical abilities into simpler things, like making magic potions from imported ingredients. She was good at it, but she didn't feel it in her heart. It was nothing like the way she had felt when she had bonded with a tree in the wildwood where she and Sigurd had first built their treehouse. How she longed for those days again. How she longed to return to the wilds. The thought that perhaps she could do so after her mother's death gave her a momentary jolt of hope, caught immediately by a pang of guilt. How dare she! To find hope of happiness in anything made possible by her mother's death seemed so selfish and wrong. 
She'd trade it all to see her mother healthy and happy again. Besides, it wasn't possible. She was alone. Only crazy people lived alone in the woods. Samina? Tara's voice pulled her out of her reverie. It's not all on your shoulders, you know. Hans and I will gladly take you in when... She couldn't finish that sentence and Samina was relieved about that. Part of her felt angry, like she wanted to shout at Tara that her mother wasn't dead yet, that she couldn't know for sure that it was going to happen, that she shouldn't be making arrangements already. She knew Tara was just being rational and helpful, though, and so she just nodded absently. It was more than a kind gesture. It was an enormous gift. And yet the thought of staying with these two people she loved like family made her depressed. She wished she could run back to the woods with Sigurd. She pushed back those memories. She wasn't going to reminisce about her brother now when things were bad enough without the added burden of nostalgic pining. Just temporarily. I don't want to stay long. Tara smiled. You can stay as briefly or as long as you like. Tara looked up. Behind Samina's back, the door had opened. Good afternoon, girls, Hans said in his northern Evenendale accent, a farmer's accent, which always sounded so cheerful. He went straight to Tara and kissed her. His golden earring shone brightly in the light of the sun from the window. He then turned towards Samina with a smile, but his expression turned when he saw she had cried. What's wrong, Samina? he asked. Ludlov drove his steed to gallop at a fierce pace towards Seven Peaks. After a few hours of riding between jagged rocks and tall bushes, the landscape finally opened up before him. A gradual descent down irregular terrain into the wide open valley, where the river Ivenon cut its way through the land towards the far southern sea. The river came down from the mighty snow-capped peaks of the Horn Mountains, which loomed far to the north, dimly visible to Ludlow's left, beyond the mist and the vast outstretched plains of North Evenendale. The valley in front of Ludlow consisted mostly of peaceful fields where sheep and cows grazed. It was dotted with small, quaint-looking farms, an innocent place. Further on, nestled on the far bank of the meandering Evenon, lay the great city of Seven Peaks, reaching up out of its surroundings like the massive crown of a dark king about to crawl out of the depths of the earth. There was an orangey glow emanating from it. Ludlow was used to seeing light of this color above Seven Peaks. Usually it came from the sacred stones kept in the seven tall peaks that gave the city its name and its jagged crown-like appearance. But as he hastily made his way over the bucolic farmlands of Ivenendale and the sky already grew darker again, he noticed that there was more to the gleaming light that came from Seven Peaks. It was stronger and brighter than it should be, and above all, it flickered, quite unlike the constant glare of the sacred stones. And then the terrible realization came to him. This was another kind of light all too familiar to any witch-hunter. The dancing light of fire. Ludlow cursed loudly and felt a surge of anger striking like a thunderbolt in his heart. 
He immediately spurred on his horse and raced across the landscape. Once he had crossed the great Ulrich Bridge that led over the Evenon and came close to the city, the silence gave way to the desperate cries of a large crowd, accompanied by the smell of burning wood. A mere five miles from the clumsy mass of huts outside the city walls known as the outskirts, Ludlow was met with the soot-blackened, beaten-down faces of refugees, who wordlessly looked up at him as he passed, the only person in the ever-increasing stream of humanity making his way towards the city. The closer he came to the city walls, the less the fleeing people took notice of him, the more the scent of burning assaulted him, and the fiercer the fiery light in the sky became. Even as the sun began to set once more, and the darkness of night closed in. The witch hunter felt fear for Adomir's life gnawing at his heart, but refused to allow any conscious thoughts about it. The black sickle had truly struck. Ludlow halted his horse for the first time in hours when he came at last to the enormous West Gate, a monumental construction, large enough to fit the church tower of a small town beneath its arch. The gate was seldom used, but its glorious wooden doors stood wide open now. This didn't make it easier to enter the city, however, since the mob of people trying to wriggle their way through it had become stifling and unruly, bordering on frenzy. There was screaming and crying, pushing and shoving everywhere. Some tradesmen and families made desperate attempts to pull along wooden carts through the chaos containing their last possessions, which made it even more difficult for anyone to pass through the gate. The horse the witch hunter was seated on became restless. Reassuring the steed by patting its neck and gently scratching behind its ears did not help. When a man dressed in rags jumped onto one of the wooden carts causing it to collapse in a clutter of broken wood, tripping over nearby refugees, the chaos mounted to a peak. The owner of the cart started shouting accusations at the culprit, while everyone else took out their anger and frustration on him for trying to move such an impractical object through the gate in the first place. When one nearby brute started swinging his fists at the man, Ludlow knew the time had come to produce his pistol. He fired a single shot into the air. The horse panicked and almost threw the witch hunter off its back, but he held on fast and cried out, Enough! Let me pass! The witch hunter order commands you! Everyone made way for Ludlow as best they could, knowing full well he could ride straight through them if he wanted to, and no one would ever sanction him for it. Once more, he sent his poor, tired, frightened horse bolting into the city. When he was at last within the walls and the mighty cathedral became vaguely visible behind layers upon layers of tall, thin buildings, he was approached by a guardsman. Master Ludlow, a fine evening you have chosen to return from the western wilds. Ludlow dismounted and handed the reins of his horse to the guardsman. This is no coincidence, Leon. I need to go to the government district. Now. Government district? <laughs> I'm afraid it's no longer accessible, Master. The fire, you see. Leon halted his protest when he saw that Ludlow had already started running in the direction of the flames. As soon as Samina had heard the ringing bells, 
she had known there was something seriously wrong in the city. Leaving Hans and Tara's house in a blur, she had made her way through the fleeing people, most of them going in the other direction, trying to get out of the city via the western high road. It was evening already. She should never have left her mother alone for so long. It was no excuse, but her visits to Tara and Hans always made her feel better, making it difficult to leave. The light of the fire seemed to come from the trade quarter to the north, but it had quickly travelled towards the Great Triangle, where she and her mother lived. When she arrived in the narrow alley where the old house was, she was relieved to see that the fire hadn't come this far yet. The right side of the house was attached to another almost identical one, but the left side was open to an even smaller, darker alley, made even narrower by the rickety wooden stairway on the house that led straight to the attic. It had been constructed long ago, when the attic had been used to store goods for the merchant who had lived in the house. Now it was a direct way into Semina's living quarters. The rest of the house was inhabited by other people, different ones on each story. Semina rarely, if ever, talked to them. They usually didn't stay for long anyway, and they were almost always the same thuggish types, probably mercenaries staying briefly for contracts. Why the landlord, a similarly shady character in Semina's opinion, had allowed a small gypsy family with almost no money to live in the attic, she had no idea. Maybe he had a heart somewhere after all. Semina was not about to lose time even wondering whether the other inhabitants knew about the dangers of the fire. Her responsibility was with her mother now. She hurried up the stairs and opened the door to the attic. She could tell she had woken her mother by the surprised, almost shocked stare that met her. Samina? Mum? Are you all right? Her mother nodded, still looking bewildered. I'm sorry for waking you, but... The next part was even worse. But, but we have to leave. Silence. So soon. There's a fire. A big city fire. It's coming this way. I know, love. Her mother sat up, and even that was clearly an effort. How was she ever going to flee the city? It was obvious to Samina that she was not alone in this thought when her mother's eyes met hers. You should go. Samina emphatically shook her head. There, there is no time for heroic sacrifice, Mum. I'm taking you with me. She had left no room for argument in her voice and immediately went over to help her mother out of bed. It was clear mother was forcing herself, hurting with every move. But at least she complied. Samina felt a bit guilty for putting her mother through this. But what was the alternative? With small, shuffling steps, they made their way to the door. Samina opened it for the both of them, and saw the look of horror on her mother's face when she was confronted with the stairs down into the alley. I know, Mum, but you can do it, please. I'll go first. You can't fall that way. She quickly descended a few steps and looked up into her mother's pale, petrified face. Samina offered her hand in help. Come down, Mother, please. Slowly, their hands approached each other. When they met, Mother clasped Samina's hand in a surprisingly strong grip. She then slowly took the first step down, her face contorted in agony. 
Samina could almost feel the pain herself. She knew her mother's backbones were stiffened, and every move she made was rusty and difficult. But still, she took the first step and the second step. Then she halted. Are you all right, Mum? Mother nodded, swallowing hard. I, I just need a, a bit of time. Samina nodded, looking behind her. She couldn't see where the fire was due to the tall buildings on the other end of the alley, but she could smell it already. Just a bit further, Mother, she thought. All we have to do is stay ahead of the smoke. The smoke above the city had a demonic quality, Ludlow thought. It seemed like the flighty shapes of claws, skulls and twisted winter branches writhing in and out of existence in ever-restless strands of dark mist. Crouched on the roof of a tall half-timbered house, Ludlow was able to oversee the whole affair in its full scope. The inferno had started with a fire in a bakery. At least that's what he had heard one of the refugees say. The panicked boy had claimed to have seen it happen himself. Now the whole trade quarter was ablaze, and people tried to make their way out through the city gates with what few possessions they could carry. The flickering light of the fire painted the massive clouds hovering over Seven Peaks in an ominous hue of red. The tall flames licked the stately residences near the government district and seemed to be dancing like defiant heretics in front of the quietly onlooking Grand Cathedral. The seven thin towers surrounding the sacred building were blackened by the wandering smoke, but the amber light behind their highest windows was still clearly visible. The stones were still safely resting there. Ludlow rose, his dark figure contrasting against the ruddy night sky. The fire had traveled southward. Several buildings in the Great Triangle were burning too now. Towards the north, the fire had now spread into the government district. As Ludlow looked down into the narrow street beneath him, he saw the mass of fleeing city people making its way towards the west, hoping to find the city gate there in time. He would have liked to jump down into the street, but the height of the building and the constant stream of refugees made that impossible. He would have to climb down on the sides of the building, using the timber frame to support his descent. He wheeled himself over the roof and found his footing on a diagonal beam sticking partially out of the front of the house. He gingerly started crawling down the wall, carefully looking down into the street. A well-to-do family passed by. The father was pulling a wooden cart not much more than an oversized wheelbarrow filled with precious possessions. Chests and boxes lay piled on top of each other, balancing precariously. As they passed, a leather-bound case fell off the cart and landed onto the cobbled street, spilling jewelry. Immediately, several of the poorer refugees were drawn to the fallen treasure like moths to a light. They pushed aside the man's wife and daughter and started fighting over the gold necklaces and silver earrings. It was painful to behold this quick descent into primal greed and desperation. 
To Ludlow, it was also an opportunity to hasten his way to Adomir. He jumped down onto the cart, landing on top of the larger chest in a crouch, balancing on his feet and his right hand. His coat travelled slightly slower and gently laid itself to rest on the ground around him, wreathing his figure in darkness. The refugees saw him and took him for an angel of vengeance. They dropped their loot and ran away. The members of the family looked at him with a combination of fright and gratitude, but he ignored them and jumped off the cart and sped into an adjoining street towards the government district. The witch hunter moved easily through the masses. As soon as the plebeians saw a man of his order, they tended to move out of the way. It wasn't long before he reached the stone archway marking the beginning of the government district. Here, between the tall, step-gabled brick row houses of the patricians, all was quiet. The inhabitants had clearly fled already, or at least most of them had. On the far side of the street, where Adam's house stood, stately flames flogged the sky. The house of Ludlow's mentor was already burning. His heart beating so hard he could feel the blood rushing in his throat, the witch hunter dashed towards the front door. It was closed. He didn't have the time to force the lock, and so he didn't have any other choice than to go in through the window. He broke the glass with the butt of his pistol and quickly cleaned the jagged ends of glass that still remained. Then he grabbed the thin metal framework. It was made of thin, bendable material, and with a powerful tug, Ludlow yanked the framework out of the window so he could crawl through it and make his way inside. The fire had not yet reached the downstairs floor, but the heat was already unbearable. A thin layer of smoke streamed over the ceiling like a swirling river. Adomir! The witch hunter screamed, bursting into a coughing fit soon after. There was no reply. He started to run towards the stairs when all of a sudden he was halted by the appearance, seemingly out of nowhere, of what looked like a man with the head of a raven. The illusion quickly changed when Ludlow realized it was merely a man in a mask. Behind the eye holes, he could see a very human look of mocking condescension. The grotesque figure was clad in blood-red robes and seemed to be utterly unfazed by the heat and the sounds of falling debris and fiery destruction upstairs. Ludlow, the raven head said with a silky voice. Yes, I recognize you. That's the price of fame, I assume. Your reputation precedes you even when you don't want it to. Ludlow took a step closer to the man, who was obviously a cult member, keeping his hand close to the grip of his rapier. I am looking for my friend. Tell me where he is, or die. <laughs> the sarcastic laugh emerging from behind the mask sounded hollow. Do not worry, friend. We of the Black Sickle have subtler ways to achieve our goals than brute violence. Where is he? The Black Sickle is always a few steps ahead, Ludlove. Let go of your hatred of us. We could use a man like you. The Ravenhead was using his magic. Ludlove found himself unprepared and unable to shut out the smooth voice that suddenly sounded so unnaturally clear and close to his ears. The voice seemed to be all around him, 
calm and reasoned, like it came from a man sitting in his chair on a peaceful evening, rather than standing in the middle of a burning building. You could be our ally, Ludlow. Ludlow gripped his head in both hands. A sharp pain started somewhere in the middle of his brain and quickly spread throughout his head, onto his spine and into his chest. One didn't usually feel any physical discomfort when exposed to the voice of temptation, but he had trained himself over the years through dedicated exercise to fight this particular form of magic by arousing the illusion of agony in himself. It required enormous efforts to resist the false honeyed words and to maintain the terrible but necessary pain. Despite his efforts, the voice still sounded as clear as ever. He was a good one, this seducer. The greatest witch hunter of our time, on our side. Concentrating fiercely, the witch hunter squeezed shut his eyes, blowing through his clenched teeth. Carefully, he allowed the pain to intensify. And all the pain you carry, and all the madness that drives you, could be lifted from you forevermore. An invisible knife cleaved through Ludlow's intestines. He bit down on his lips and allowed the phantom pains to persevere one moment longer before he finally opened his eyes. He saw a strange white haze and realized it was his own searing hatred. He barreled down on the cult member with his whole body. Behind the mask, he saw the man's eyes widening in fear. As quickly as he could, the witch hunter pulled his hidden dagger from his belt and planted it with all his force into his opponent's chest. The man didn't scream, but simply fell and lay there, helplessly gasping for air like a fish on dry land. Ludlow didn't stay to watch the man die, but hastened up the stairs, still carrying the bloody weapon. When he arrived at Adamir's study, he kicked in the door. The sudden smoke overwhelmed him, irritating his eyes. Against all instincts, he forced himself to enter, holding the shoulder cape of his coat in front of his face as protection against the smoke. He tried desperately not to breathe in, but the smoke and the fire were everywhere. He saw Adamir's precious furniture going to ruin, but that didn't bother him nearly as much as the heavy wooden beams supporting the roof that were being lambasted by the fire. Adomir sat on a chair in the middle of the room. He was gagged and tied with ropes and looked at Ludlow with old, tired eyes. Ludlow quickly went toward him and loosened the gag. Don't breathe too deeply, Ludlow. Adomir's usually strong voice now sounded weak. Flee. Leave me here. I'm prepared. Ludlow ignored his mentor's words. I will carry you! But even as he was saying this, he saw Adam's gaze moving upward. That beam! Ludlow, run! The heavy support beam above Adamir's head was starting to move. Ludlow pushed his mentor out of the way, chair and all, falling onto the floor himself. He heard an infernal crack followed by a massive crash and saw a swarm of red glowing embers flying around him like fireflies in the night.
the witch hunter got up and couldn't see Adomir anywhere. He was gone. A moment long, he just stood there, until his eyes found the lower portion of Adomir's legs. His boots were still visible. Everything else lay beneath and behind the fallen and broken beam. Ludlov wanted to lift the beam, but then another one came thundering down right behind him, leaving dozens of burning splinters hailing down onto the brim of his hat, rolling down his coat. He jumped back, blinded by smoke and dust. The roof itself was starting to creak loudly, threatening to collapse. With a deafening sound, several beams came down, further obscuring Adomir from Ludlov's view. Roof tiles came tumbling down into the room. Ludlov knew that if he stayed another moment, the whole structure would come crashing down onto him. And so, knowing the jump was far too high, still he turned, ran towards the window and simply threw himself out of it. Surrounded by shards of glass, he let his body plunge down into the cool night air. He did land on his feet, bending his knees to soften his descent, but it was still more of a crash than a landing, and he found himself sliding down onto his side with sharp and merciless pain rushing up from his feet into his legs. A piece of wood stuck through his coat and would have pierced him if it weren't for his leather jerkin. It left him bruised and screaming. He didn't have time for pain. He had to get up. Disoriented, he got to his feet again, sweat purling on his soot-blackened face. The roof of Adamir's house now collapsed entirely with a dull, crushing sound. Ludlov's breath quickened as he took in the nightmare. The fire kept feeding on the house as tears mingled with sweat and made streams on the witch hunter's darkened face. He took a few helpless steps towards the building, as if there was any chance of salvaging anything, and then thought better of it. He could hardly contain what had happened in his mind. His mentor, his inspiration, the man he had looked up to the most throughout all of these years, was dead. The witch hunter walked around aimlessly through the lonely street, until suddenly... Against his own expectations, he screamed his voice hoarse into the night. Curse you! Curse you to eternal death, enemy of all! His desperate words echoed around him and remained unanswered. For a very brief moment, he thought he would collapse too. He was tempted to just lie down and give up, but found himself disgusted by the very thought the next second. He clenched his fists and reminded himself that there was work to do. Did you actually love your city, Ludlov? Ludlov was surprised by the question, or perhaps he was more surprised by the fact that he had never even wondered about it before. 
He had clearly felt and expressed love for the cathedral and some of the beautiful architecture in Seven Peaks. He had felt love for some of the inhabitants, of course, most notably his parents, Maria, Adomir, and Lady Hoskiv. But had he ever really loved Seven Peaks, the city itself? It was hard to answer. Seven Peaks was proud and grand, but it was also an old and tired city, and it was touched by something within, corrupted. Death looked at him quizzically. We all felt it, Ludlove continued. Crime and sin were everywhere. It was a torn place. A decadent, lifeless aristocracy ruling over a far greater mass of commoners so far removed from hope and improvement that they simply accepted the unpleasantness of their brief lives without question. Silence fell again. Silence here in this dark place was not like Ludlove had experienced anywhere else. When he stopped speaking and the old man didn't answer, he truly heard nothing, not even the sounds of his own body. It felt like sinking into dark water, and the need to break the silence again pressed him to continue. The words felt like something to cling on to, something familiar in this deathly quiet place. Despite all of this, though, I still called the city my home, and however bleak life in Seven Peaks was for many of its inhabitants, the thought of leaving it didn't seem to occur to anyone. People would always choose for the familiar, even when that fate was worse than... Worse than meeting me? Ludlove couldn't help himself. He found himself smiling. Why is it we are all made to fear you? Now death smiled. Hmm. I'll leave it to you to find the answer to that question, good man. I know you are fully capable of doing that. But for the time being, it is my turn to ask the questions if you can live with that. If you can live with that. Ludlow scoffed. He nodded, then lowered his head and found the scoff turning into a chuckle, and the chuckle turning into a mild and reserved laugh, but nevertheless a laugh, that came from deep inside, grateful at the chance to reveal itself. He laughed and felt warmth coming to his eyes. I can live with that. Death looked at him still wearing the same kindly smile. The ordinary people of Seven Peaks accepted their fate, you said. But what about you, Ludlow? You seem to have been a different sort of man than they were. Yes, Ludlow said. I think I was. I think I was a different sort. He found his mind wandering. Memories seemed so much more vivid here, so much more tangible, like books he could just take from a personal library and flip through. Perhaps it was because everything was a memory now. He flipped through the pages of the book called Maria and saw things that hurt him and made him happy at the same time. 
I had tasted true happiness, he said. I had experienced what it meant to love and to be loved. I had known that and then lost it forever. He frowned, not in anger at the loss of his love, but in disapproval of the man he saw in his memories, the man that he had become after Maria's death. He wasn't angry at the world anymore, now that he looked at himself from a distance. It all seemed so pointless to be angry now. Ever since the day she died, nothing seemed joyous anymore. Nothing seemed daunting anymore. I did not flee anymore from suffering and I did not seek anymore for pleasure. I became the perfect recipe for a witch hunter. Ludlove had decided to make his way to the middle district where his parental house was located. There would be no one there, but it was a safe place. For now. Unfortunately, getting there would entail navigating through the trade quarter and the triangles, since the guards had closed off the Grand Marketplace on Grand General Halskiv's orders. A measure Ludlove could only agree with. No matter what happened, the cathedral should not be touched by the fire, especially if his suspicions were correct, and it had indeed been started by a demonic Lucian cult. As he was making his way through the streets of the Great Triangle, he came to places where the fire had not yet been as destructive as it had been in the more northern parts of the city. Grey smoke veiled the small streets, which were mostly abandoned by now. He was now deep in the Great Triangle, in an area that was sometimes called Gypsy Town. The houses were no different from the others in the Great Triangle, but it was clear that different people lived here. Windows and doors were painted in bright colors, and shop signs often had bizarre and amusing pictures on them. The Sintra Gypsies were a joyful people. The contrast between the playful adornments of the houses and the grim smoke dwelling through the street emphasized the tragedy of the fire. He could only hope that the inhabitants had managed to flee in time. Suddenly he heard someone humming. It was the voice of a girl, or a young woman, bright and feminine, and as sharp a contrast to the grim surroundings as the colorful paint on the gypsy dwellings. Her voice traveled through the street like a ghost, causing the witch hunter to halt and wait. A slight breeze tore away some of the smoke, and he could see her. A small figure, with long, dark hair. Her dress had once been white, but it was very dirty, and her bare feet made it clear she was a gypsy. She was kneeling on the ground, in deep concentration. She had not yet noticed him. Ludlove moved as quietly as he could to a nearby barrel and hid. Something in his gut told him he wanted to observe what was going on from a distance. Peering from behind the barrel, he finally saw what she was doing. She was bent over the body of an older woman who was lying in the middle of the street, eyes closed. The girl let down a bowl-shaped leaf from a plant Ludlove could not recognize on the woman's face and started humming again. Gently laying her hand on the leaf, she opened her mouth and let her hum turn into a song. 
He immediately recognized the magic drenched sound of the language. It was unmistakably arcanic. She sang, and a subtle green glow came from her fingers, flowing from them to the leaf itself, which became brighter and brighter until it shone like a candle through the smoke. Breathe, Mum. Don't let go. Breathe. Footsteps. His muscles tensed. Ludlow tried to peer into the street beyond the girl and her mother, but there was so much smoke it was difficult to see who was approaching. Then, an imposing silhouette, wearing a tall hat, emerged. Ludlow was not the only witch hunter here. The unusual height and slender build of the figure made it clear right away who it was. Any witch hunter would have recognized the butcher known as Vathek from a distance. Oi, you there! The girl jerked upright. Please, sir. It's my mother. She's dying. She clearly didn't know Vathek. And what are you doing? Healing her. Vathek's large, round eyes suddenly turned to the glowing leaf on the woman's face. Using magic. Sir, sir, please, you must understand. Which? But but the fire. Vathek didn't let her finish. You think the fire is an excuse for the use of magic? All it does is bring out a true face of you, you demons. You know the laws, girl. But since there is no time to arrest you... The girl raised her arms in protection. I will have to resort to the alternative. And a sick grin split his face. Ludlow could see him reaching for his pistol. He knew where this was going. And he was not going to allow it. Unfortunately, he had already shot once this evening, and he was only carrying a single pistol. He would need to reload it quickly. He had one more bullet in his breast pocket, wrapped in a clean piece of cloth. It was silver, a kind he usually only reserved for supernatural creatures, but he had no choice. He took a small flask of black powder and used it to load the weapon. Then he slid the ramrod out from underneath the pistol's barrel and rammed the cloth with the bullet into the barrel, all the while keeping his eye on Vathek and the girl. You can't do this. I'm trying to save her. And I am trying to save the world from heretics like you. I will not tolerate another stain upon its face, Vathek said, pointing his pistol at her. There was no time left. Ludlow rose up, took a fraction of a second to aim and made the shot. Sparks and smoke burst from the pistol. He had no idea if he had hit the other witch hunter until he heard the dull thud of the fallen body. There was no painful groaning, no angry cursing. Vathek was dead. The girl turned around to look at Ludlow. The smoke that had already been in the street mingled with the smoke from Ludlow's own weapon kept a veil between them. But he could clearly see her face. She was startlingly beautiful. Who are you? Come from the shadows, she said. And he realized he was still not clearly visible to her. 
Perhaps it was better this way. She would never be able to identify him as Vathek's killer then. Can you still heal your mother? He asked in reply. If I'm quick? Then don't waste your time with me, Ludlow said, then turned and quickly went back in the direction from which he had come. He would find some other way to the middle district. So that was the first chapter of Witch Hunter. I am Domine de Groot, the author of this story, and I hope you enjoyed this week's content. If you are gripped by the story, well, you can always visit our website over at audio-epics.com, or is that audio-epics.com? You can actually purchase the entire dramatized audiobook right over there if you want. If, on the other hand, you're more of a patient type, well, next week we'll bring a new and exciting episode chronicling the adventures of Ludlow the Witch Hunter. And over the coming weeks, we will in fact feature the entire story. Meanwhile, have a great week. <laughs>